This episode contains material that might be triggering for some. If you need to stop the podcast at any time to take care of yourself, please do so. If you need support, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Dialectical Behavior Therapy was created in the 1980s by Marsha Linehan in Seattle, Washington. Today, DBT is taught all over the world. We're two therapists who believe everyone can benefit from DBT skills. I'm Kate. I'm Michelle. And this is DBT and Me. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hello, hello. Oh, Kate and I are super excited today because we have a special guest with us, and I'm really excited to introduce you all to her in just a minute, but we were just talking about this before we actually press recording, I think, a little bit. We're like, hey, we just kind of get to sit back, <laughs> just ask her some questions, let her take the lead, <laughs> and it's going to be a really, really awesome episode, I feel. I'm super excited for the topic that we're going to be diving into, which is having a mental health professional with us um, who has a diagnosis of BPD. And Carly is going to be sharing all about that shortly once I turn it over to her. But before I do, just real quick promotional stuff. Um, If you have not already, and you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, (laughs) go on and give us a rating and a review. Um, And if you want to support the work that we're doing on the podcast, check out the links in the show notes to go on to our Patreon page and to check out our Etsy shop for DBT-related products. And the other links that we have down in the show notes, too, we have links to our other podcast, The Couch and the Chair, So you can listen to us there. We have the links for Apple Podcasts and for Spotify, both in the show notes. So if you haven't already been listening to The Couch and the Chair, you can check out our other podcast and hear us talk, as Kate often says, about all (laughs) non-DBT related things (laughs) that we share. Um, And along the lines of Patreon, before I forget, we had a new patron this month. So I want to quickly shout out Charlene. So thank you, Charlene, for becoming a patron. So, so appreciated. Okay. Now I think I'm ready to turn it over to Carly. Um, Carly, we would love to hear a little bit about who you are before we dive into asking you all these questions and hearing more about your story and your life experiences and just all that good stuff. Just a little bit about who you are. Sure. Yeah. So hi, my name is Carly Crespan. I am a life coach and alternative medicine practitioner. So I have the goal of helping individuals take better control of their life and own their healthcare decisions. Um, What I mean by that is that I am a non-traditional medicine provider. So I have an Ivy League education in the psychology of judgment and decision making which is sort of a very practical utilitarian branch of psychology that I like to weave into DBT. And I have a didactic, so that means 
classroom medical education. So I'm educated in traditional medicine, but I now practice outside of that for a lot of reasons. Um, just to be clear for everyone, I want to let you know I am not a doctor. I don't want to be a doctor. I'll dive into this a little more later, um, but I have found traditional medicine kind of lacking in its acceptance of individuals like me with cluster B personality disorders. That includes our BPD, narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic, and antisocial personality disorder. Um, and what I mean when I say um, I'm a borderline doctor is that's kind of in my re most recent publication. So first, I'm diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And second is that piece about attending medical school, but not pursuing a degree or licensing and now practicing sort of on the fringes um, on the border of traditional medicine. <laughs> yeah, like you really have a foot in that world of like, you have all the educational background of what a doctor would have. But yeah, it's just not how you're choosing to practice professionally. Yeah, I love that. Um, so I get to spring with the first question, which is, Carly, when did you come across DBT for the first time and what drew you to it? So along those lines, DBT, my exposure started in medical school when I was when I mm -hmm. was in medical school. Um, so that added stress and kind of the pressures of school really exacerbated my mental health symptoms. So I needed to formally address my extreme emotions. Um, also, that's around when I finally got my formal borderline diagnosis and my treatment teams were kind of better able to help me once they identified that. So the borderline label actually was really necessary to solidify my treatment plan. So it's a kind of shame that it's also so often used to stigmatize. Um, that was way back in 2015, so eight years ago. <laughs> and it's hard to believe kind of looking back. But what that started with was a DBT group after an inpatient treatment. Um, I have had DBT in kind of high volume settings in partial hospitalization programs so that looks like a classroom setting for about five hours a day, five times a week. I've also had it in IOP, that's intensive outpatient. So that's more of a step down level of care a few times a week for two to three hours. I've also worked through the DBT um, book in groups, individual therapy, and now kind of practicing on my own. So mm -hmm. I, I weave that into what I do too. And what I really liked about DBT was finally finding a solutions focused kind of model for my borderline tendencies. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the B part of DBT, that behavioral yeah. component. Um, and so my undergrad was in psychology. So thinking about my behavior in terms of reinforcing and extinguishing habits really helps kind of simplify some really complex issues in my head. Um, so it's extremely practical, which appeals to me. I'm like a really emotional person. Um, so this kind of just helps me with my striving to calm down a little bit. Um, DBT gives me a useful framework to evaluate my be behavior on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis too. I keep a diary card. Um, I make nice. changes and I, I constantly improve. So I'm a work in progress. Um, and it also helps me to pull away from so much of my black and white thinking. So worst is like 
my favorite word. <laughs> um, so I'm working on eliminating those extremes. Language is like really powerful. And when we say words, we think them and integrate them into our self-worth. And so that ties into one of the DBT dialectical assumptions that I loved sort of the most, where we're all doing the best we can in the moment. And sometimes we need to improve and do better. I like mm-hmm. that one as well when we're teaching those uh, on night one of group, that particular uh, skills training assumption. So yeah, I appreciate that. And I think, yeah, you're drawn to a lot of the same things that drew, drew, draw. Here we go. A lot of people to DBT, right? With that, like, really tangible help right, and assistance with what you're going through. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you were touching on it a little bit there, but we ask every guest the question of what's your favorite thing about DBT? And if you could change anything about DBT, what would it be? And I'm really curious to hear your answers because you have so much experience as a consumer of DBT, like you were mentioning with being in all the groups that you've done and things like that. So what's your favorite and your least favorite thing? Um, so one of my group therapists, Jesse, is going to shout when she hears this. It's radical acceptance. Oh, <laughs> and I know favorite. that's a hard okay. one. <laughs> um, it is incredibly hard, but it helps in such an important way to craft that life worth living piece. Um, my most extreme example was leaving medical school. So healing people, helping people, it's what I'm good at. And medical school was sort of the entirety of my driving force. That was my whole purpose. Um, even still, um, my partner is a medical student. My dad was a doctor. Mom's a nurse. Sister's is a doctor. Other sister's a bio PhD student. <laughs> Everyone is in the sciences. So I'm surrounded by science and medicine all the time. And that's how I like it. But traditional medicine really wasn't um, the right fit for me because there are so many obstacles for doctors and healthcare providers to access mental health resources and take care of themselves while taking care of patients. So the stigma against borderline is even greater, I found, within the profession than outside of it. This kind of left me absolutely devastated when I left medical school. I didn't have a medical degree. I thought I have no hope for the future. No, no, no. All these roadblocks. I really couldn't see a way around it. Um, But that's where radical acceptance kind of came in. And now I'm on this really great new path that I never thought was going to be possible in non-traditional medicine, where I can see um, sort of those how skills start taking place, um, the non-judgmentalness, and being a little more compassionate towards myself, a little happier and healthier. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then I think when I think about things that I want to change about DBT, it's more the access to care that's kind of really challenging. Um, and I'm, I had a really great meeting even this morning about advocacy and, in those lines and working with insurance companies and things like that. Mm. But especially because I was in school and the behavioral health component of the student healthcare plan that I was on was so impractical while I was mm. on a student student budget and then there are co-pays and restrictions and just restrictions to care are enormous so others otherwise um a lot of medical students and um, individuals in like graduate school and things like that often have to use medicaid um and that's even further Mm -hmm. limiting when trying to find a, a 
provider trained in DBT because it's such an extensive process. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then right now I'm living in Lancaster, PA. I moved out of Philadelphia um, back to where I grew up. And some of the DBT resources are kind of limited geographically as well. Mm. So when I was in Philadelphia, I worked with all these amazing people at Belmont Behavioral Hospital. And then some resources I really want to recommend Comar there. They accept patients with Medicaid. So I highly recommend them, um, but it's it all kind of just varies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I love that when you were sharing that your favorite piece about DBT is radical acceptance, that you had a personal example to back it up. I think that's amazing because Kate and I feel, I, I think, very much the same way about radical acceptance. Like, we love it, and we also acknowledge that it's really hard. And I'm 100% on board with you with what you would change about the access to care. It is so tough. So, Yes. I'm totally agreeing with everything you're sharing with that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm in the process of finding a new DBT provider right now for myself. So I I still seek care. I've gone through the manual like a million times, but I still am interested in having that formal group setting just because of the group and then also the value that the clinicians bring. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm in that process right now. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I love it. I love it. Well, tell us more about your mental health story. How did you come to be diagnosed when you finally were diagnosed with BPD? So this was, this has been a really long journey kind of over the last, I want to say 20 years. (laughs) Um, So I was first treated in mental health for PMDD. So that's um, surrounding uh, your period and menstruation. Um, That's because my dad's an OBGYN and that's his wheelhouse to prescribe for. So it's kind of out of necessity. So my parents, like I said, a doctor and a nurse, both kind of insisted that they thought I had mono when I was first um, getting depressed. And that was my junior year of high school. Um, So I gained a lot of weight. I was really tired all the time. I was chugging coffee nonstop. Um, I was studying in a healthcare program at the time that was academically rigorous and I was away from friends. And I really loved that. I got to meet a lot of really great people and colleagues and it helped shape my career a little bit, but I was so depressed. And so Mm. it was my dad who first prescribed Prozac and I started there, but it wasn't until I went to college that I sought out counseling. And so I went to the University of Pennsylvania for my undergraduate in psychology. And they were so incredibly helpful and hands-on. Penn is kind of the institution of Aaron Beck, founder of Cognitive Distortions. They're um, pioneers in positive psychology. Um, and they have a really robust judgment and decision-making program, which is what I studied there. Um, their CAPS program or the Counseling and Psychological Services, and I always recommend to students to look for their CAPS programs um, and counseling services in college, really helped identify what struggles I was having beyond that depression piece and anxiety that I've kind of had anxiety my whole, whole life. So the school set me up with my all-time favorite therapist. Um, Dr. Alexander was the head of CAPS there, and he's brilliant and compassionate and really made, um, he's maybe the reason I survived college. And so counseling resources in school, when done well, 
can be really transformative. It was really done well at Penn, and and that was at such an important time in my life. That contrasts kind of strongly with my experiences with mental health later in my education, especially in medical education, um, and kind of what the realities are in the workplace, particularly for health, particularly for healthcare workers. But it can be done really well, so it exists. <laughs> You've seen models of it going well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I love hearing stories of people connecting with that, like one, I mean, I'd rather everybody have more than one person, but at least knowing there's that one person that helped get you through, right? Like that really hard time or in your education, things like that. So he was so amazing. Yeah. (laughs) So glad. And you've been touching on this already a little bit. I, I feel like kind of bringing in these different pieces, but how did it really all come together for you to bring you to the moment where like you really knew that you wanted to be in this field and that you wanted to help others. And what was it like to really arrive fully at that decision for yourself? Sure. Yeah. So I've kind of always wanted to help Um, my family, like I said, very science and medicine focused. um, But my dad is sort of the epitome of the healthcare provider I want to be. So he's he's not perfect. I mean, my parents were definitely confused with mono and all that stuff. And they they were kind of like, what's all this mental health stuff? Um, But that's sort of despite of or maybe because of their roles in traditional medicine that kind of reinforces that. Um, but I grew up practicing surgical knots with dental floss on our kitchen chairs. And wow. I, <laughs> I would do heart surgery on little Play-Doh earthworms. For some reason, I don't know why earthworms. Um, actually, earthworms have multiple hearts. So that was an accurate surgery. And it was kind of a little more complex than I think my level was. Um, but so I thought I wanted to be a surgeon. Um, And I really thought of surgery as art and medicine. But then I realized with my borderline diagnosis that it gives me such an advantage as far as empathy. And that's sort of my superpower. Mm. So (laughs) I feel everything that my patients feel for better or worse. Um, I will tear up. Um, I'm emotional. I I get emotional at their emotional and physical pain. Um, And that's something when I realized I don't need to fight my own health and my diagnosis to help people, I can kind of transform it to the greater good. Mm. So I like to like study at a problem is how I call it, um, which is maybe intellectualizing a little bit. Um, That can be pathological, but it can be kind of practical if you humanize it a little bit too. So psychology, like I was saying um, at Penn was my default major um, because I couldn't do two things at once, literally. So I decided to treat my mental health and earn a degree. I just combined them. (laughs) And that's sort of how I am. I really don't have a great work-life balance. It's all work all the time, all life all the time. Mm. Um, But it's great because I feel like I've never worked a day in my life, kind of despite having held a whole bunch of different jobs, but I really just integrate myself in what I'm doing. Um, But what I found is that in common with all of those jobs, the thing I really liked were the complainers. Um, And I don't mean that negatively. I complain, I I mean, all the time. So I'm okay with complaints. The first part of your patient note, though, in medicine starts with a chief complaint. 
So this is good. Like, tell me what you're complaining about. Tell me this. Tell me what's wrong. I want to fix you and and not just fix it for you. I want to help you to figure out how you can fix it. Um, and that's because so I find that the consumer in um, so many jobs and like as a patient in healthcare, whatever the job or situation is, you really have an active role. You have a choice. So you're the one who is going to accept or reject a doctor's advice. You're going to take your medication. You're the one who's making real change, not, not your doctor. Um, and I really find that it's the people I work with or for that kind of make all the difference. Um, and that's angry people, hurt people, sick people, bring it on. <laughs> I like the negative experiences because I turn them into positive ones. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there's kind of two things that really stood out to me there. Like one, I love the part where you said that you really just realized, okay, I don't have to do, yeah, I don't have to do like two things at once. Like I don't have to just like treat my <laughs> mental health or earn a degree. Like I'm going to do both. I love that piece of it. And I actually really like how maybe there were all of these little moments that you had in your past, you know, when you were working other jobs or that kind of a thing with complainers, when maybe you didn't know it at the time, but that it was just kind of like these little nuggets along the way when you were actually like responding really well to them or appreciating the complaints they were bringing forward. It was like all these signs that this is the path you were gonna move towards eventually <laughs> that's great yeah all those moments in like retail and restaurants and you never <laughs> think it's gonna tie into medicine but yeah it, it all kind of is part of the picture <laughs> yes exactly yeah great wow, that, that absolutely makes sense um well so i know we were sort of going up through your undergraduate degree kind of looking a little bit further into your um, medical training, what reactions have you received from colleagues and other professionals when they find out about your diagnosis? So um, hide it is the number mm. one piece of advice. Mm -hmm. um, and then also before knowing that I'm borderline, I hear of a lot of watch out for the cluster Bs in the hospital. Um, not necessarily talking about me, but talking about patients. Um, yeah. So that stigma surrounding BPE is just really, really pervasive. Um, I know doctors who refuse to treat borderline patients. Um, that's medically or for mental health reasons. Um, so when my colleagues say things like, um, the cluster Bs stick out like a sore thumb, referring to patients. I wonder sometimes if I'm like just as obvious standing next to you, <laughs> like, do I stick out? Um, and it's it's a really insecure moment. Um, I it's like I kind of um, it's a it's living in a world where you're constantly wondering if you're just a diagnosis mm. to the doctors around you. Mm. Um, and that's not true of everyone. I've experienced some really great treatment and care, particularly when I've sought DBT specific resources with highly trained, empathetic and knowledgeable professionals. Um, but a lot of times I've been told to hide my diagnosis. Um, I recently wrote an article titled Borderline Doctor that was published in the journal Medical Education but that was after I left traditional medicine. So it's really just the death knell to admit it fully um, 
that you have BPT, BPD when you're practicing medicine. And that's even after my applications to medical school included a personal statement that sort of vaguely described my depression and anxiety and trauma history. It's just really unacceptable to kind of take that next step. <laughs> um, and so my medical school knew this about me when they accepted me, but they, they wanted me to hide my diagnosis once I got in. Um, and I think that speaks a lot to some of where where there is a disconnect between college and colleges and universities for undergraduates, um, which more openly encourage seeking medical care, mm -hmm. whereas medical schools I've found might encourage you to access mental health resources, um, but sometimes they get really concerned when you do access mm -hmm. them. Um, and that's a little bit because of the licensing that goes on for physicians. It's still really invasive. It asks about mental health history past and present. Um, and in many states, that's a really huge barrier to practicing medicine. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because like I look at our fields, right, with the path that Kate and I went where we got master's degrees in yeah. counseling and so many people choose the path of counseling because of a mental health history. So it's, I don't know, at least I feel like in our field, we're not surprised in any way no. when we find out that most of our colleagues have not quite ubiquitous, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. It's, you know, actually it is, it's viewed really positively in our field. Like if Kate and I share with colleagues, which Kate and I are of course very open about the fact that we're in therapy ourselves, what our whole other podcast is about. Um, but when we share that with colleagues, it's, it's viewed very positively. It's like, yeah, good for you doing therapy. So it's actually super fascinating for me to hear you mention how in the medical field for people pursuing that track career-wise, it's viewed so differently. It's yeah. really kind of like um, our patients can get sick, but our doctors can't. And yeah. so it's it's a really big problem. Yeah. I, uh, sorry, Michelle. I'm sorry I missed a beat there. I was reading that you were reading the next question oh, and just totally missed right. that I was, and I was a Anyway, my brain spaced for a moment, but which is really unfortunate because I had uh, like I definitely wanted to speak to what you were saying there, Carly, just because I remember similar kinds of moments in grad school about people saying, like, watch out for borderlines, things like that. And I remember consistently speaking up against the stigma, even in the mental health field. Right. Because um, uh, right. Like I had had that diagnosis when I was 19 and I was like, hey, guys, like mm, maybe don't be such dicks. Um. And, uh, yeah, so anyway, yeah, I, 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 I feel you. Uh, sounds like you had more and worse, but I wanted to say, yeah, I related to that in our, in my educational experience as well. I don't know if you encountered that at all, Michelle, but I definitely did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess as we keep building on that, cause this is something that I think would be so helpful for our listeners to hear about just if we keep going on this topic of stigma and what are some other experiences that you've had and how have you coped with those things, right? Like when those types of comments are made or just like sharing really more how this shows, how this shows up. Sure. Yeah. So, um, Stigma, that's been really huge and life-changing for me. I faced enormous stigma in the field of medicine. And um, first, I want to acknowledge that the attitudes about borderline and mental health in general are starting to change amongst the people 
that practice mm. medicine, but that change is not at all reflected at a systematic, um, like a systemic or institutional level. So it's a little bit of a trap. Um, we all are more open and accepting of mental health, but then there are huge roadblocks to practice if you actually seek mental health care. Mm. And I illustrate this point in a blog post where I've shared the mental health survey results from my medical school for this year. So students reported lower perceived stigma, yet still the majority feel they need mental health services and are not receiving them. So they can't access that care, even though the, the perceived stigma is lower. That gap is explained by the realities of medical practice and their real sanctions against those who, like me, actually seek mental health services. So what happened to me specifically was that I went inpatient proactively while I was decompensating because of suicidal ideations. I talked to my medical school before going inpatient to prepare study materials, um, a liaison to deliver me additional materi materials while I was inpatient. Um, I didn't have access to internet, computers, or many of the resources that you really rely on to study. Um, yeah. So I discussed with them all the logistics of my courses, an estimated timeline for discharge, any plans to make up classes, assignments, exams, and other graded materials I would miss. That was all before going inpatient. That all fell apart <laughs> uh, the day I was discharged. So that same day, feeling really confident because what I needed was medication management. That's why I was going inpatient. Um, and I received that addressed my suicidal thoughts, and I was really stabilized and healthy coming out um, and was all geared up for that plan. I called Student Affairs um, at PCOM for the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, where I went to school that same day. Um, and the person I talked to informed me that I would not be welcome back to classes as planned. And I should instead um, expect a letter in the mail regarding an obligatory leave of absence. I was explicitly informed that this was not probationary or a reflection of my academic abilities in any way, but it was still devastating. Um, continuity of medical education is really important and research, research supports not putting students on a leave of absence um, where appropriate, which was my situation. Um, so being on that leave and being out of med school, my condition quickly kind of regressed. Um, I started experiencing severe anxiety and depression symptoms. I felt kind of lost and without a purpose. Um, medicine was and still is my whole life's purpose. So without that structure and stability, it was kind of getting pulled away from me. Um, additionally, there were financially destabilizing factors. Um, I lost access to student loans mm. and other resources like health insurance, like we talked about before, so important for access to care for DBT. Um, and that was through my school. Mm. So I really needed to gotcha. recover from, yeah, it was a big setback. So I spent the next year working on my mental health. Um, that was with a psychiatrist, a therapist, um, an intensive outpatient program, group therapy, all really helped me. Um, 
And then I also needed to find a way to support myself financially during this time period and get back on health insurance plans so I could get DBT and my meds. Um, I started work as a clinical research coordinator at the University of Pennsylvania and had mm. some really amazing experiences working in anesthesia and cl um, critical care. So I was trying to find a job that would pro proactively build my resume um, and experiences and support my return to med school while also supporting mm. me financially and things like that. Yeah. Um, and then Penn also had a really great insurance where I could get the care I needed and covered the meds and um, some prior authorization, all these things like that. This was important because the school health insurance I was on didn't cover those meds. And so I reassessed my health after a year and the timing was kind of awful. I was making a medication change. I needed to be on that insurance. I was not stabilized um, financially. I was in a challenging position because I couldn't get grad plus loans, which are important <laughs> um, mm -hmm. after running up some credit card debt a little bit in the short term. and. Um, then, um, and that was all because I was put on a compulsory leave that I couldn't plan for originally um, and lost my student loans. And so um, I would lose the insurance that covered my medications if I went back to school at that time. And also my uh, psychiatrist and therapist both agreed I shouldn't return to med school just yet. Um, I so I reached out to the school and said, can I extend my medical leave of absence? That application was denied without any explanation other than it's the continuous nature of medical education, which I had mm. cited to them earlier and <laughs> they didn't really care about when they put me on a, a mandatory leave. So despite my insistence that doing so um, would be unwise, um, and not supported, like I said, not supported by research to put me on that leave. Um, so it was pretty hypocritical. I was backed into a corner. Um, I was trying to decide, do I take classes and risk failing or give up on medical school entirely at the, without trying at all? And those were really my only two options. So I felt trapped. Um, the position the school was putting me in uh, was, sort of untenable. And so I, I failed one of my courses, um, only just barely. <laughs> um, so I am a good student. I was accepted to um, multiple medical schools, both DO and MD programs. And I chose PCOM after writing an application essay that disclosed my mental health difficulties, like, like I mentioned. Um, and I just, I couldn't study though. I, I couldn't get out of bed most days. I was so anxious and depressed and miserable and my life was just tumultuous. Um, and when I failed my neuro course, the school met with me and I discussed with them a plan of action to take control of my health, um, improve my academic standing, pass the board examinations. Those are really key, uh, required for all medical students in training. Um, that meeting went great. Um, I put together this absolutely gorgeous, I love Google Docs, I'm such a nerd. Um, so it had a table of contents and outline plan and all these cool things. Um, nevertheless, two weeks later, the school sent me a letter saying I'm dismissed from the program because of a bunch of courses I failed. That letter was inaccurate. Um, they had listed a number of 
courses that I had actually not failed. So I pointed that out to them and I said, I didn't fail these courses or remediate or, um, and I had not failed the uh, requisite number of credits per their student handbook for dismissal. Um, they told me they just didn't really care. Um, the dean informed me that the committee was not reversing their decision um, and that the dismissal wouldn't be rescinded. I was informed that I could appeal the decision, but I kind of felt like, why at that point? Um, I had already, I, I already told you what I was going to say. Um, and the same people who were going to decide um, that would decide the appeal. So um, they had already really decided I wasn't fit for their medical school. Um, so I, I did submit for an appeal in the, the timeline that was delineated. Um, that appeal is still pending. I don't really have much of a desire to return to medical school though. Um, and I've, I've talked to other students there who have had similar issues um, and for other chronic health conditions too. So it's mental and physical things that can really affect your medical career. Um, I'm pursuing some action against them with civil complaints. Um, I'm now in enormous debt and don't have a medical degree. Um, I would likely mm -hmm. have to take legal action against them to recover that debt, but I'm kind of perceived as risky by lawyers. So again, it's that stigmatizing because I'm borderline. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's like, hey, well, aren't you just crazy? Um, <laughs> so that was sort of a really huge disappointment. Um, I... Um, I'm a kind, compassionate, empathetic person, and I, I was receiving really incredible feedback from my patients and preceptors about my interactions with patients. And I really, really wanted to practice medicine in the traditional sense, uh, particularly as a psychiatrist to help other borderline patients like me. Um, and that's just not what happened. And it's it's really a shame. Um, we care so much about equal representation in medicine for women by race, diversity is important, um, but not so much for those of us who have medical conditions, um, particularly okay. medical conditions that affect mental health. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing all of that so in depth because, you know, before I asked the question, we were really talking about some of those comments that you've heard people in the medical field say without them being aware that, of you know, of what your diagnosis is, but then to just like really take us back to the beginning, like to take us back to like when you were in school and how your school responded to choosing to seek out treatment. And again, it goes back to like what we were all kind of saying at the end of the last question, which is like, why isn't that viewed as a positive thing? Why isn't that supported? Why aren't they saying, hey, that's amazing that you're taking steps to like seek out this treatment that you need and we will do everything we can to support you when you exit from in your case like an inpatient program why is that not happening like i i noticed for myself like i was feeling pretty infuriated hearing how they reacted to you and it just takes i think a lot of courage to to share all of that in the way that you just did and to tell that that story from when you were trying to get your degree <laughs> Thank you. I, and I, I think also you hear from um, 
what people say to you is mm-hmm. you're really courageous. Good for you for taking this time off. And 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 people at my medical school, uh, administrators at my medical school would say that. And then what they put in writing was a different yeah. story. Um, oh, and yeah. that was a dismissal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, frustrating. Yeah. No, I'm with you, Michelle. It's pretty, pretty infuriating to listen to a lot of parts of that. And I think you're entirely right, right? There's not nearly as much emphasis on trying to have workplaces that are inclusive or accommodating for folks with some of these other types of issues. So makes a lot of sense. Um, Speaking of stigma and people having uh, backwards thoughts about some things, uh, what is one big misconception about BPD that you wish you could change? This is one of my favorite things um, because it was a misconception I had about myself too. Um, That's that we're all manipulative. Um, So even my boyfriend kind of gets a little confused with this sometimes. He'll say, are you crying to get me to do what you want? Or um, you know deep down that when you cry, it will sway my behavior and manipulate me. It's kind of true. Um, but all of our behaviors are manipulative. If you yep. think about them that way, <laughs> we we all kind of manipulate each other and the world around us. We're all trying to get people to do things that we want them to do. And that's okay. That's normal. Um, that doesn't have to be malicious or evil. Um, we might try to convince someone to tidy their room, for example. Um, that likely doesn't have some nefarious second meaning. Um, it could likely be to help them stay organized and have a clean, safe living environment. There are even explicit DBT skills that address this, changing the behaviors of others. It's learning to do that and to interact in a healthy, effective way without ill intentions, and DBT is great for that. I love that because one of the things that I will say to people about my profession is that I personally often view therapy as I I manipulate I emotionally manipulate people for a living like that's my that's what I do I like that's that's I do all the heavy lifting of manipulation it's it's and I get paid for it right like so I uh, I love that you're sort of normalizing the concept that yes but also no right that like. Yes, we're all manipulative, but by all, I don't mean everybody with BPD. I mean everybody. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, no, I love that. <laughs> Thanks. I'm curious, you know, what advice would you give for other people who want to pursue, you know, some kind of higher education, whether, you know, but I, I would say even, like, specifically people who want to, like, I don't know, go into the medical field, but they have a mental health diagnosis already and they're worried about how that's going to impact them on their path to like get into that career. Like what words of wisdom do you have for them? Yeah, sincerely, um, know your rights, um, but also Mm -hmm. know the law and the real barriers that you're going to face, whether or not those are fair. So um, I almost have a little bit of a concern for Gen Z right now. Um, I love that we're so open now about our mental health and diagnoses on social media. I mean, I am about my health, um, but that's a choice I've made later in life after pursuing a lot of traditional career paths that didn't really work for me. Um, So I'm open about my diagnosis, but I'm really lucky that I can be. Not everyone is that fortunate, at least not how things stand right now. Um, I'm not saying that's right. 
I'm, I'm just saying that it's going to take some time for policy to change to catch up to the more open attitudes about mental health that are really fortunately emerging in society. Mm-hmm. Um, but the policy hasn't quite changed yet. Um, there's a really great article I like to reference in the US News and World Report that came out about Dr. Lorna Breen, an emergency medicine physician. She died by suicide, kind of concurrent with the tragedies of um, the COVID p- pandemic. Mm-hmm. And her family has been really amazing at starting a foundation in her name and elucidating the key factors that affect mental health care stigma and limit access for medical students, physicians, and many other healthcare providers. Um, this article sort of outlines the actual barriers to access that mental health health providers and medical students and physicians in particular face when considering mental health treatment and sort of the consequences of doing so. So what you're thinking about there is state licensure licensure applications. Um, Medical license applications are allowed to ask broad questions about mental health history or its hypothetical effect on competency. Um, There are still many state medical licensing boards for physicians and um, nursing licensure boards as well that continue to ask mental health questions on applications that are inconsistent with standards under the Americans with um, Disabilities Act. Uh, We also have hospital and health system privileging and credentialing applications. So this means the health system where you practice can ask questions about your mental health. Um, The Joint Commission, a healthcare accrediting organization, strongly encouraged healthcare organizations not to ask about the past history of clinicians, mental health conditions or treatment, and to limit questions to conditions that would impair clinicians' current abilities, but that's not really what's happening still. You also have commercial insurance credentialing. That's kind of along the same lines. And these questions can be incredibly intrusive. Um, You have to sign a HIPAA waiver granting an institution access to a doctor's health records. um, And that can be pretty standard for these credentialing packages. Um, And then we have malpractice insurance. Um, That's just necessary part of practicing medicine as a physician. Um, Applications for malpractice insurance can ask questions about prior mental health treatment. Um, So there are similar issues there. Um, And then the legal discovery process during lawsuits is really invasive. Um, And you're going to get lawsuits as a physician. It's just, it happens. Um, It's part of the job. So in the discovery process, process of these malpractice lawsuits, there's often an unnecessary release of mental health records. Um, Virginia uses a safe haven model, which is a legislatively backed confidential resource through which physicians can seek support for burnout, career fatigue, um, and mental health without the fear of undue repercussions to their medical license. Um, Some other states are starting to follow suit, but that's not the norm. 
And then the final part is really just the practical logistics um, surrounding mental health treatment requirements. Um, I often saw my classmates when I was in treatment um, and I was sometimes told there's just nothing we can do about it, even after asking to be put on a service without medical students or residents so um, who I might know personally or professionally. And this is common. Um, and sometimes um, with insurance, you're boxed into um, receiving treatment where you work um, yeah. in the same system. And that can cause some really immense distress. And it certainly did for me. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, thank you for going into so much detail there about all those different places where you may have, well, it doesn't sound like you may have questions about your mental health. It sounds like you will have questions about your mental health, uh, we'll definitely make sure to share that article that you mentioned about Dr. Lorna Breen. We will share that in the Facebook group so that people can give that a read if they're curious. This is kind of a random follow-up question, and I'm sure there's probably a very lengthy explanation here, but I guess I'm kind of wondering, so with all of these questions that people will be facing about their mental health, either current or past, if they do decide to go on this track to enter the medical field, what do you kind of recommend there? Like, I mean, I'm sure, right, you can't, I don't, I don't know what the rights are around, like, can people just say, like, basically that they don't want to disclose, or is it best to, like, disclose maybe, like, as little as possible? Like, when people are facing these questions, how, how should they respond? And of course, that's going to be super nuanced for each person. But I'm kind of wondering that, like how to face all these questions. Yeah, so that's that's a really tricky one. Um, you kind of have to you have to admit to things that are on paper um, and your yeah. your med school is going to put together an MSPE. Um, so if you have anything like a leave of absence, like I did, you're going to have to explain it. And that has to be consistent with what your medical set school says um, you took your leave of absence for. Um, but for the most part, it's hide it, hide it mm -hmm. as much as you can. Don't talk about it. Um, you can ask residency programs about uh, do you have counseling services and things like that. Um, but really, the answer is um, hide hide your mm -hmm. diagnosis and pretend it doesn't happen and doctors don't get sick. Mm, yeah. Oh, what a tough spot to be in. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I've been known to do is ask people what diagnosis they want on their medical record, right? Like when they, when I need to give them one for reimbursement of some sort, I'm just like, well, what are you comfortable having on your permanent record? Um, because I understand that that shit can come back to, bite you in the ass yeah and i've, I've asked different future. people not to write borderline um on my medical records at various points in time um and that's been just really necessary I, i've had mm -hmm. to um discontinue care with providers before because they weren't willing to do that which is unfortunate because um then that kind of has a trickle down process where you're not going to get the proper research and funding for mm -hmm. borderline um uh, like new medications, new modalities, mm -hmm. and new things like that, if you're not actually reporting actual numbers. Yeah, that makes a lot of yeah. sense. Um, well, circling back around to kind of, I don't know, present day and and how your 
or where you are, I guess, right now, as I would think of that, like, what DBT skills do you find are the most helpful for you personally on kind of your day-to-day basis? Yeah, absolutely. So um, radical acceptance is one of my favorites. It's also one of the most helpful, I think. Um, maybe not day to day, though. Yeah, that's like big picture. Um, so there are certain skills that I sort of organize as my go to's. Um, and I categorize things situationally, um, like the stop skill is good when I'm in the car, and I can't go grab ice, for example. Um, and use the tip skill. So I categorize the skills in my mind so that I know when I can access each one at an appropriate time. Um, Or especially if I'm like inpatient, I know to get things in advance. So I rely on cup ahead a whole lot. Um, I find cupping ahead to be really important. And one of my all time favorite resources is to kind of elaborate on the pros and cons lists that DBT breaks down in such a beautiful way with those four squares that we map out. Um, The the pros of doing something, the cons of doing something, the pros of not doing something, and the cons of not doing something. So those four squares. Um, The bonus of making things elaborate for me is that it, it incorporates the distraction skill by default. So it's sort of forcing me to pay attention to details and it brings mm-hmm. me into wise mind a little bit too. Um, I have to think more rationally and not just emotionally. So I'm kind of hijacking a few skills at once here. Um, we do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, and you're using actually like three or four DBT skills within this one DBT skill. <laughs> Truth. Yeah. So, so what I like to do with that pros and cons list is make it, even more elaborate. Um, so, and I do this with clients and with family members too. Um, I take the pros cons of doing something list and I set all those events equal to a sum of one, um, because also the sum of not doing something is equal to one. Um, it's where my judgment and decision-making psychology and statistics background kind of hops on board here. Um, and if I did a good job with my pros and cons list in theory, I've thought of everything that needs to be considered for that event to happen or not. And that event either happens or doesn't happen with 100% certainty. So that's where setting our baseline at one or 100% comes in. Everything adds up to one a whole. So from there, I can consider that all the influencing factors I just wrote down, my pros and cons, are things that affect that choice with a weight of less than 100% or less than one, but they all need to add up to 100% because something can't happen 110% of the time, for example, so you can't go over. Um, mm-hmm. And it might feel like you you want to, and I'm oftentimes tempted to say there's a 150% chance of influencing my decision about something that um, this is gonna be a big, big concern, 150%. Um, but that's a wise mind moment. Um, and I have to recognize that I'm not being dialectical. Um, maybe I have some black and white thinking going on and I need to check the facts. So more skills. Um, but so all my factors need to add up to one in both columns of an event that I might choose um, to do. And that that might look like, um, should I break up with my boyfriend? 
And I'm going to simplify my pros cons list for this illustration purpose. Um, but let's put a couple of influencing factors into play that might be reasonable to consider. So let's say my pros are if we break up, I get to make all my own decisions and don't have anybody else's feelings or best interests to consider, um, which I think is awesome. So I'm going to assign that a weight of 25 percent um, or 0.25 if we're adding up to one. Another pro might be that I can find a new exciting partner, um, which I might say has a 10% influence, um, 0.1. On the other side, I'm thinking about cons, like losing someone um, I've lost a lot of time in getting to know and care about. Uh, let's give that 50% because that's really huge. Um, and another con might be I'm scared to be alone and worried I'll never find someone else. Um, that might sort of be two things, but for simplicity, let's say that's one and that's assigned 15% weight. So if I did my math right, all of that should equal 100%. And I've considered 100% of the pros and cons that, that can influence my decision. So 25 plus 10 plus 50 plus 15 is 100%. Um, now we could look at our pros and cons list as two pro pros and two cons of breaking up. And we can do the same thing with weighting pros and cons for not breaking up. Um, let's pretend we did that again for illustration purposes. Normally I'd have trouble deciding between my equal length pro and cons list two and two. But because I weighted my considerations, I can add up those values in each column to see really how much all the pros and all the cons mm. actually influence me. So that's taking that 25% and 10%, that's 35% for all the pros, 50% and 15%, that's 65% for the cons. So my lists really aren't 50-50 like they looked like at mm. first. Um, when I factor in everything together, um, that they're not all weighted equally, equally, I, I come up with something really meaningful here. So I care more about staying together or the cons, the 65% than I value breaking up, which is 35%. Um, and maybe a lot of people do this automatically, um, but it's just a really formal way for me to evaluate how I actually feel about the situation. If I'm being honest with myself and how important each factor really is. And it lets me use a little, a couple other skills along the way, very formally. Um, and just to pull it back into that grid of four, you can also pretend to do those same things with the other squares. Um, and let's say I have 20% pros for staying together and 80% cons for breaking up. And that's just a way to check your math. So everything lines up. Um, and that means that um, I'm just looking at it from another perspective and I feel the same way and that gives me extra confidence. So it's an elaborate way to do the pros and cons. <laughs> I love that. I like pros and cons anyway, but I've never heard of that sort of like weighted uh, approach to things. So that's definitely something I will noodle on. Uh, no, I was thinking forward. the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, wow, that was just like a masterclass in pros and cons that gave. <laughs> uh, yeah. I had never thought of it that way too. And I think we've kind of like informally have said that to people. Like it may be that you have something in one box that really carries a lot of weight and like I'm not a big math person but I actually really appreciate bringing some math and some math into this like yeah I wish we had like a whiteboard or like a way to 
give that visual for our listeners somehow because that's such a great way to think about it and i'm secretly really bad at math <laughs> i'm like i don't actually <laughs> you like, noted here i don't about think it. in numbers um but what i find is i'm so emotion-minded that when i do apply numbers it pulls me into the reason mind a little bit so i get mm-hmm. to use some of those wise mind skills yeah no it's really really great i i love that way to think about it Okay, I guess to start towards wrapping us up a little bit, is there anything else that you want our listeners to know that hasn't come up yet with the questions that we've asked you or what we've talked about thus far? Sure. Um, So borderline personality disorder, it can sometimes be really scary. Um, Up to 10% of us die by suicide. Um, My brain has calmed down significantly with age. um, And many people will say that. Um, But I want to send kind of some of some love out to those of us who are like me in our 30s. So the mean age of suicide is actually higher than you might think in borderline personality disorder. Um, So the mean age of suicide is 30. Um, A follow-up study found that that's closer to 37. Um, So all of my frequent visits to the ER and attempts um, at suicide when I was younger while they weren't just for attention by any means, they aren't really the end of the story for me. Um, my last visit to inpatient, I was grouped with a whole bunch of 18 to 20 year olds who are really struggling. And that is such a hard age, um, suicidal ideation and attempts are definitely really difficult when you're younger. However, when we don't find relief for so many years, that's when I feel there's that real risk of death by suicide. Um, my suicidal ideations actually peaked at one of those 30 something years without disclosing my age. Um, and that coincided with my time in medical school. So that was really incredibly tough. Um, it sort of felt like, well, I've done all this really good work with DBT for so many years and things still aren't working. My emotions are still out of control. Nothing is good. I give up. Um, and that's when I was most afraid that I would be, I, want to say successful and I apologize for using that word but that's how it felt at the time so that's why I'm saying I I might be successful at suicide um I'm also really dangerous now with my medical background and experiences so I'm a little more sophisticated now um and what I realize is I don't want to die by suicide when I'm healthy. Um, but if I'm having suicidal thoughts and starting to develop a plan, I might actually be good at suicide now um, to, again, be. <laughs> it's a little difficult to say it that way, but that's how it felt. Um, so now I take every precaution to go inpatient um, when I need to before I get to that intent piece. Um, That's also why I really needed to go inpatient during medical school, despite interrupting my education. And I identified that before acting on my emotions. So that was so important. Um, And I was lauded by many there at the school that I was so brave and taking time for myself to prevent further decompensation. Um, But then I really wasn't supported when I was returned, um, when I returned making that 
an even more difficult time, um, really some of my darkest days. Um, and I, so now I like to work with clients of all ages, but especially those who are having those same feelings of frustration later in life when they've reached a point where they feel like they've tried everything and nothing has worked. It's sort of that I tried everything, nothing worked keep going point. <laughs> um, and I try to be really positive and solutions focused, similar to DBT, um, and how I push past that I've tried everything moment, um, like I was feeling. So, um, but when you think about it by default, um, it feels like nothing is working, but you're still alive. So that means something, even something small is working. And so that means you haven't tried everything because it's not the end yet. And I'm um, kind of happy to work with people in identifying what is working, add additional skills and how to push past that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm really glad that you brought the topic of suicide into the conversation, because when we're talking about a BPD diagnosis and what people tend to think of when they hear that is they do think about people who experience suicidality on a regular basis when they have that diagnosis, which certainly not everybody with a BPD diagnosis does, but many do. Like that's really interesting research about the age. I was totally unaware of that. I would have also assumed that like, yeah, and, and as you mentioned, yeah. right, like, yeah, like, you know, by and large, if we're just looking at I mean, kind of the general population, people do tend to have more suicide attempts and I think also perhaps more suicide completions when they're younger. But then when we're talking specifically about within the BPD community, that's a different story that's not really told or talked about. And you just told it. And I think really, hopefully that helps a lot of our listeners know that if they are experiencing suicidal ideation, they're not alone. And that piece there at the end about how even when you think nothing is working, something is because you are still here. Um, that's that's a really inspirational note to end on, I think, with what you were sharing. So, Thanks. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, you are not alone. It's it's really the reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I guess the last piece here um, before Kate and I take back over again, we could say, um, what kinds of resources would you like to share with our listeners, uh, personal things about your work that you want to share for how people can find out more about you or just more like broadly general resources? We'd love to know anything that you have that you think could be helpful to our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what I do now is I'm a health coach and an advisor. Um, I want to help people like me take control of their own lives, their health and their reality. That's what I've done. Um, I work with individuals, groups. I do healthcare consulting for institutions and I work with many conditions in addition to borderline. Um, I also have a few com comorbidities, um, the ADHD, CPTSD, bipolar, kind of those body focused repetitive behaviors that don't get talked a lot about, mm -hmm. um, generalized anxiety disorder, major depression, addictions, things. Um, and you can learn more about me and my background and how to contact me to book an appointment on my company's website, 
That is www.datoradxm.com. You can also follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those things. Same social media handle, D-A-T-U-R-A-D-X-M, at datoradxm, which is actually a name born out of my positive experience with... um, dissociative psychedelics so I dabble there as well (laughs) um and I think I'm in a unique role for healthcare providers seeking help too because I'm sort of that licensing loophole I can't report you to a state licensing board I'm not going to label you with a diagnosis that follows you through your healthcare records or insurance and I'm not going to prescribe you any meds so I'm really in a fortunate position outside of traditional medicine now where I'm safe from so many of the sanctions that I mentioned of people with borderline um, and many other healthcare conditions who can't get the care they need without the fear of those sometimes unfortunate career-ending repercussions. So I'll share that article from the U.S. News and World Report um, Mm -hmm. with you guys. I'll share that link with Michelle and Kate um, for reference as well um, and some of the other links that I mentioned. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. We will post tons and tons and tons, all the links, all the links in the Facebook group. (laughs) So if you're listening and you haven't joined the Facebook group, this is your sign. Join the Facebook group to check out all that stuff for for Carly. Yeah, perfect. Okay. I think that's everything. Before I talk a little bit about coffee hour for next month, and then Kate's going to, as always, guide us through a closing moment. So our next coffee hour is coming up on August 7th, and there's a couple updates a little bit to coffee hour. So we had um, a survey go out that we um, are really thankful for a number of people who are mental health providers who took the survey to let us know if there were any changes or improvements that we could make with the coffee hour talks that we've been doing once a month. And one of the pieces of feedback that we got, which like I hadn't thought about it, Kate, I don't think you thought about it either. Like Kate and I just think in US dollars because that's Mm -hmm. where we're located, um, (laughs) is in the US. And we did not really think about the exchange rate for some of our more international listeners and how the price we were charging for coffee hour actually becomes a, a couple bucks more expensive for them. And so in the spirit of wanting to make coffee hour affordable, For everybody, we have lowered the price from what it previously was at $25 to attend. Now it's $17. So the price is a little less expensive. And then the other thing that I was thinking about, because we've had a couple people after coffee hours follow up with us and say, hey, I missed it, but I still still want to join or I still, well, they can't join. Of course, it's not live anymore, but they still want to get the replay. That's what I mean to say. Um is that if you are a mental health provider and you want to be kept in the loop about future coffee hours, but you may be missing posts we make in the Facebook group and things like that, um, just shoot us an email, dbtmepodcast at gmail.com and just like put in the heading something like, you know, join coffee hour list. And we'll make sure to then notify you in advance of when coffee hours are happening so that you can stay in the loop. And basically, you'll just get like two emails from us a month, like one in advance just being like, hey, this is the coffee hour coming up in a few weeks. One like a day or two before just as a quick reminder email. That'll be it. We'll only shop up or shop up, crop up in your <laughs> inbox. That's what I mean to say. Two times because 
I know how my inbox is so flooded with so many emails and it drives me nuts. Um, But if you want to be kept in the loop, that may be a good way to do it. And then you just get to decide each month, this is either a topic I'm interested in or a topic that I'm not. Sign up if it is, pass on it if it's not. And that can be one way to keep in the loop. So if you want to be on our email list for that, just shoot us an email and let us know. And as for... Oh, sorry, what was that, Carly? And me too. We yes. add you. Oh, well, yes. make sure to add you. Yes, we have your email address, so we can get you on there. Yeah, totally. Um, as for the topic that's coming up on the 7th, we are going to be diving into everything that goes into the first night of group. I keep calling it the first night. I don't know what else to call it. The first session of group. Um, the yeah. first just the first group of first the, group the first group of the groups that will follow yeah <laughs> the first time that you're kicking everyone off meets your group. yes there you go um <laughs> the first the, uh, yeah i'm just gonna call it the first night of group when when you are meeting with your group participants for the very first time they're joining your group And you are before them needing to fill them in on all the important things that they need to know about what to expect from the group that they now find themselves in. We're going to walk you through all the different components that go into making sure your introduction night is successful. There's a lot of different moving parts. It's a packed night of group every time the Kay and I lead it. So we want to really make sure that you have a game plan for that first group of how you're going to walk participants through everything that they need to know. So that's what the topic is going to be. And we would love to see you there. As we've mentioned the past few months, the link to sign up is down there in the show notes. So you can just click on that and come and join us on the 7th. We would love to see people live. Our last one was July 3rd and we knew we would probably have very few live attendees since it was right before a major holiday in the U.S. Um, And we we would love to have some people live this time. Yeah, we knew it was going to happen. We're like, we probably won't have any live attendees. And we didn't. But anytime we have live attendees, it's our We're excited. Yes. Yes. Okay. I think I've blabbered on enough about that now. Is it time for closing moment? I don't think yes. you're forgetting anything. Oh, okay. Closing moment then. Well, actually, before settling in, I just want to take a second and say, Carly, thanks so much uh, again for being here and for sharing so openly uh, and uh, vulnerably. I think that's a, the best way to fight stigma, right? Is for people to just openly and honestly share about their experiences. So we thank so appreciate you. So you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This has been such a pleasure. So I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> of course. Of course. Okay. Sorry. I was... I am not scattered, <laughs> she says wishfully. Uh, so, all right, now actually time for closing moment. So, oh, all right, if you want to take a second to just go ahead and get comfortable, whatever that means for you today. Give me sitting, standing, laying down, whatever feels good and right in your body right now. And if you're safe and you feel comfortable doing so, I invite you to go ahead and close your eyes. To begin with, we're going to start by just noticing our breath. You don't need to breathe any more slowly or any more deeply than you are naturally. It's just about tuning in. Just about really focusing in on the sensations and the rhythms of your breath. 
and letting them welcome you into your body and into the present moment. So for today's exercise, we're going to move that awareness, not just to the breath, but also to our whole bodies and our emotional selves. This is just a check-in. There's a moment to ask yourself the question, what's going on for me right now? What emotions am I feeling? Where do I notice them in my body? What am I noticing in my body that's maybe letting me know what I'm feeling? Just taking this moment to be mindful and introspective about what's going on in your inner landscape today. As you encounter various emotions through this moment, take a second to try and ask what that emotion is trying to tell you. All of our emotions communicate, so what are these ones trying to say? About you, your day, your life, the current environment you're in. You may or may not be able to do anything about what your emotions have to say, but at least you're acknowledging them. You're noticing. You're being mindfully aware of what's going on for you. It's going to help you be more present, more calm, and more in control of what you do in response to that inner landscape. Then you can take the time to do a bit of an audit or an inventory. Just a check-in. No judgment, no expectations, no way you're supposed to be feeling. Just aware. Just listening. Just letting be whatever is. And again, if there are things you can do to take care of yourself in response to what your feelings are telling you, I encourage you to hold on to that as you exit today's practice. But for now, you can go ahead and come back to your breath and maybe back to your body. There's some gentle stretches that would feel good to you right now, rotating shoulders or wrists, neck. And whenever you feel good and ready to do so, I invite you to go ahead and open your eyes. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll talk to you next month. Thanks, everybody. To learn more about us and the DBT skills we're teaching each week, join our Facebook group. Simply log in to your Facebook profile and search for DBT and Me Podcast.